Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi everyone, Um, I'm Amelia Abraham, I'm a journalist and an author, and I'm grateful to the RSA for having us here today for this conversation um, and for giving me a platform to speak to Carl Siciliano and Carla Ecola about the LGBTQ plus homelessness crisis. I'm going to introduce our speakers. Carl Siciliano is the founder of the Ali Fournay Centre in New York City, the world's largest organisation dedicated to homeless LGBTQ plus youth. The Ali Fournay Centre provides emergency and long-term housing, drop-in services, medical and mental health treatment, and vocational and educational services. Carla Ecola is the founder and director of The Outside Project, an LGBTQI plus community shelter, centre and domestic abuse refuge based in London. The Outside Project provides support and services to those within the LGBTQI plus community who feel endangered, who are homeless, hidden homeless, and feel that they are on the outside of services due to historical and present prejudice in society and in their homes. This conversation is based on an essay that Carl has kindly written for a book I recently edited. It's called We Can Do Better Than This, 35 Voices on the Future of LGBTQ Plus Rights. And uh, essentially what we did was gathered a range of amazing LGBTQ plus people and asked them the question, if you could change something to make life better for LGBTQ plus people, what would it be? And most importantly, how would you practically do it? So Carl has written this incredible essay about founding the Ali Fournay Center and about what we can all do to fight LGBTQ plus homelessness, which is what we're gonna be talking about. So I wanted to start the conversation off, maybe Carla, if you could just tell us a bit more about you and the work that you do, because my introduction was quite brief. Um, yeah, sure. So um, I'm the founder and director for The Outside Project. Uh, I worked in the homelessness sector for years before that. Um, before that, I had the same experience as a lot of LGBTIQ plus youth of bouncing around and being in insecure housing. I spent like several years living in squats in London, particularly, um, which introduced me to the kind of rave scene and young punks and other queers who had also traveled from other cities or other countries uh, to London to kind of have, uh, I guess like freedom and to explore their identity and to feel a sense of community. Um, so that was kind of, that was a really interesting um, and, and quite chaotic time for me in my life. It was, you know, my early twenties, uh, right up until I, I started working in the homelessness sector. So I was still actually living in a squat when I started to work in the homelessness sector, which kind of sort of shows how uh, hidden homelessness exists amongst our community that I was uh, I was employed by a homelessness service whilst still homeless, but that wasn't necessarily recognized. Um, so yeah, I think within that sector, meeting other LGBTIQ people uh, as colleagues and as people accessing hostels and day centers, uh, I realized how inaccessible these services were to me um, and to my community. I was very, uh, I was really struck by how just male, like cis white male dominated those spaces were. Um, there was just like real clear inequality, I suppose, um, well definitely. And people just didn't really feel that safe. Uh, so, I, so from there, that was like 2016, uh, you know, we decided to get together and set up the outside project uh, as a winter shelter. It was like 
as a response to that. And, you know, we, we spent months campaigning and trying to find a building for us to base this shelter in and we got nowhere. I mean, everyone invited us to meetings, asked us a lot of questions. I realize, you know, free consultation is a, is a big thing, um, you know, for, for our community. Um, so in the end, we, we bought a tour bus so that we could uh, actually host this shelter. So despite the fact that there's so many like derelict and en empty buildings across London, the only place that we could find to run the shelter was on the back of a tour bus. So we, we crowdfunded from the community and, and that's how we run it for the first year. And from there, we've grown into a 24 hour service now and the community center and, and Star Refuge as well. But it has been a community led project. It's, as I say, it's been a, a campaign for kind of systemic support, uh, but it's really been driven by the community here in London because they've had such a shared experience uh, of what, what we've been talking about. We've been going around to pubs and clubs and, and gigs uh, and they've just got behind us. Amazing, thank you for explaining that. We'll go into a bit more depth on the amazing work that you do in a minute. Um, Carl, you're over in, are you in New York right now? Is that where we're speaking to you from? I'm in New York State. I, I, I live, I'm in my home now, which is about 90 miles northwest in a small town called Cudabackville. Okay, and so you were in New York City, is that right, when you founded the Ali Fonay Center? I'd love to just, hear about the story of how it started and what you were doing at the time. Sure, so I began to work with homeless young people in New York City in 1994. I became the director of a, a drop-in center in Times Square called Safe Space. And on my first day there, I, I met Ali Fournay, who was a, a black non-binary young person uh, at that time, there were no safe shelter options for, for LGBTQ young people or adults for that matter in, in New York City. Uh, there was really just one big uh, shelter provider run by the Roman Catholic Church and um, LGBTQ young people were, were routinely uh, beaten and, and harassed and, and, and terrorized when, when they tried to sleep there. So all of the young people were really just stranded out in the streets. Uh, there, at the time, there was this kind of collision of forces that, that made their lives uh, very much imperiled. Um, Times Square had for several decades been a place where street youth in New York City would, would kind of survive due, through sex work, through dancing and peep shows, through drug dealing. Uh, the street economy that, that so many of the young people had to turn to because it was impossible for them to get employed in more mainstream settings. Uh, in the mid-90s, uh, there was uh, a huge gentrification of, of that of Times Square. Um, and it went kind of hand in hand with very aggressive policing. And um, Ali Fernay, for example, was, was arrested uh, over 40 times in, in the two years prior to, to their, their murder. Um, there was also the AIDS pandemic uh, before there were uh, really effective treatment options and, and many of the young people that we worked with were getting infected with HIV and AIDS. Um, and uh, there was just a tremendous amount of violence in, in the streets at that time. Um, and um, 
I knew seven young people between 1994 and 1997 who were murdered in the streets of New York. Uh, five of them were LGBTQ, uh, which almost all of them, in fact, were, were trans or non-binary young people, which, which just really demonstrated um, how endangered they were and, 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 and the consequences to the lack of access to, to safe housing and support. Um, and so Ali Fernay was, was the last of those young people that was murdered in, in December of 1997. And it was just, I really cared for and admired Ali. Uh, Ali was this very charismatic, uh, open-hearted, uh, very loving and, and, and compassionate young person. And uh, Ali's death was, was devastating for me. And out of that, I, you know, found the resolve to, to create um, the Ali Fernay Center. Uh, when, when we started back in 2002, it was very much just thinking there needs to be emergency shelter options for, for LGBTQ young people where they can get off the streets and be safe at night. Uh, but but over the years, uh, we've really recognized that it's not just the need for shelter. It's, it's that there's like an overarching issue, which is that so many young people who who are uh, queer are just not able to be accepted by their parents, by their families, uh, and they don't get the kind of support that 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 young people should have to to be able to move into rewarding adult lives. And so, you know, over the years, we've really tried to put in place as much as possible to, to give the young people the kind of support that, that they deserve. Uh, so, you know, now we, we have a, a range of housing options and we offer mental health services, medical services, job training and placement, um, a, a lot of, of, of the kinds of support young people need to, to just move into healthy adulthoods. Yeah, you just touched on it a little bit, um, but this idea of, you know, why is there a disproportionate LGBTQ plus homelessness problem um, feels like a really important thing to cover off quite early in this conversation. Um, I wondered if either of you wanted to maybe speak to that, explain some of the, the reasons um, in a little bit more detail. So, I as I say, the, the outside project, we're an 18 plus service. So we, we see people, uh, you know, of all ages. Uh, so 18 year olds, right up to uh, people who have retired. Um, you know, we've had uh, people who are widowed. You know, they've had like a long, like 20, 30 year relationship and stability and then, you know, become widowed. And, and that has led to their homelessness. So a real sort of, um, you know, across the board, uh, we've been able to see the equalities in access to services uh, for our community. Uh, but I think for young people particularly, they experience that kind of like shock first night out homelessness um, at the point of coming out or being discovered uh, because they're living in their parents' home. Um, and then that that becomes a risk to them. Um, there's, there's violence or abuse uh, within the home and they have to leave immediately. Um, so that's that's kind of like the predominant reason that we see young people accessing our crisis services. Um, structurally, the response um, is appalling within the UK. 
to, to young people who experience uh, hate crime and abuse because of their sexuality or gender identity. I think, you know, we've, we've seen young people who have been advised by housing officers to return to abusive homes. Um, we've, we've had housing advisors uh, try to persuade young people that their parents are acting in their best intentions uh, when their parents are trying to force them into conversion therapies and uh, really, really dangerous situations. Um, so the prejudice is, as I say, systemic and really impacts uh, the homelessness that our, our young people experience and they're feeling validated in their own concerns for how they're being treated. Uh, you know, we've, I feel like some of the young people, when they come to us and we discuss like the journey that they've had to get into the shelter, I just feel really lucky that they're alive, you know, in a, in a lot of cases that they have managed to find their way to accessing this support because the barriers that have been put in front of them by adults, um, you know, by people that are supposed to be there to support them, um, you know, is is really shocking. And so, yeah, I, I feel like there is that, um, that first night out homelessness that our community has always faced, uh, but I just, I can't understand why in 2021, the response from uh, ed educators, the response from housing services uh, remains to be so appalling. You know, I, I just, I can't understand how that hasn't changed. So an another systemic issue within the UK is access to housing benefit and the rate of, uh, of social security that you would get as a homeless person. And for our community, going into shared accommodation often doesn't feel very safe. Uh, so that has an impact as well. People are more likely to go into insecure uh, house shares and overcrowded illegal housing in multiple occupancy um, than, than try and navigate that system. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've found myself in an illegal house in multiple occupancy when I was kind of exiting kind of squats and that warehouse scene. Um, I thought that I'd found an LGBTIQ plus like house share, uh, but what I actually found was an illegal HMO. And at the whim of one of the other tenants, I was asked to leave. So, I, you know, I was effectively made homeless. I didn't leave because I knew I knew my rights and I looked into it, but I was I was asked to. And I think that happens to a lot of young people as well, um, or just like LGBT people. They think that they're in a safe space, but complex relationships uh, in our community can just lead to uh, instant homelessness. And when we migrate from one town to another, trying to find our community and find safety, we lose what's uh, what's called local connection. Um, so your local connection is the place that you've lived and worked and paid taxes for like five years or more. Um, so if you were to come like me, I came to London from Birmingham. If I'd have gone to the local authority to ask for housing assistance, they would have told me that my local connection was Birmingham and that I needed to return there. And they wouldn't have listened to any of the reasons for why I needed to move to London. They wouldn't have recognized you know, any of the risks for me returning to Birmingham. So and that's the migration of LGBTIQ plus people for safety is, is not recognized within that local connection, um, gatekeeping by local authorities. Mm. You've touched on the kind of wider problem of 
endemic problem of homelessness in the UK, and then also specifically LGBTQ plus homelessness. I wondered, is there, are there statistics um, for what proportion of homeless people in the UK are LGBTQ plus? There are, I mean, there's, there's, def there's like a lot of reports that have been done, but I kind of, I've, <laughs> I've sort of lost, lost my way with the concept of research in our community because it never really leads to any change. Um, there was like the LGBT survey that was done by the GEO back in uh, 2017, uh, released in 2018. It had 108,000 respondents. And you know, there, was, um, there was one piece of evidence within that where I think it was around a third of the respondents had had a serious incident in their household within the previous year. Um, so that's a, that's a huge, uh, huge number of people to experience, uh, you know, a serious incident. But it didn't really go on to say, like, well, what happened next? You know, I imagine a lot of those people became homeless. Um, but then that that research, that survey, the action plan that was developed from it, it all just got got scrapped recently. And we're just kind of in this this cycle of research and resource research launch events um, and it, no actual action, no, no, the funding is allocated to kind of respond, but then there is no response. A, a panel is set up to discuss this and it just kind of, um, it just seems like we're stuck in this cycle where, where nothing ever gets done and we're, we're just being researched all the time. You know, we, we've had to put on our, our website now that we don't want to hear from researchers. We don't want to hear from, um, we don't want to hear from, the press, you know, because it, it just seems like they're, they're just, it just seems like an event. It just seems like a, a false kind of solidarity. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to explore this um, to try and support your community. Um, but then it, it never turns into anything. They never do anything. So it actually just taking energy out of our community, really, and out of our resources to participate in all of these kind of panel events and and, and things like that, it's, yeah. I mean, I went to the, the GEO's housing panel. Uh, it was just one one forum and then it just kind of closed down, it just disappeared. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge waste of, to me, it's a huge waste of resources from a sector that's already like deeply underfunded. Thank you. Carl, I wanted to ask you um, the same question, um, just about reasons. Um, or, or perhaps causes or things that might be exacerbating this crisis. And um, I guess one thing that we also haven't touched on yet that maybe might form part of your answer is um, things like employment discrimination. Um, but I'll let you go ahead and maybe talk about the US context for a second. Sure. Um, echoing what Carla said, uh, many, many of the young people who come to the Ali Finney Center, the majority uh, report having been uh, subjected to violence and abuse, uh, both physical and verbal in their homes. Uh, and that that very often precipitated their, their homelessness. Uh, violence and abuse specifically directed at them because of their LGBTQ identities. Um, but, you know, I have to say that what, in some ways, what I see is the the overwhelming root cause of, of, of the vast majority of the young people who come to us, uh, even even th that even in kind of 
precipitates and in, invites that violence um, is is has to do with like the relationship between religious communities and and the LGBTQ community. Um, over 90% of the young people who come to the Alley Fernay Center report to us that the reason they weren't safe in their homes was because of the religious beliefs of their parents. Um, we've had young people who have, you know, been told that they're disgusting, that they're sinners, that they're abominations. Uh, we have many young people who've been put in the United States. They have like these reparation Bible camps where they try to convert young people uh, away from their evil, sinful ways, um, you know, which is really recognized as a sort of form of psychological torture. Um, and, and frankly, young people have even experienced uh, conversion therapy efforts in, in other youth shelters in the United States. Uh, many of the youth shelters are run by religious organizations. Um, and, um, that they are, are have been told that you know that they need to pray to stop being gay or trans. Um, I, I do have to say, in, in terms of research, I, I have a slightly different take than Carla. Um, you know, I would say for years in the United States, we saw the same thing that there were studies that were being done that that showed that that LGBTQ youth made up a disproportionately high percentage of, of um, uh, homeless youth and that it didn't lead to much action. Um, I remember back about 15 years ago, uh, we really advocated in New York City that the, the New York City Council do a census uh, to determine how many homeless youth there were in the city and, and try to quantify how many of them identified as LGBTQ. And it turned out that, that the, the city found over 3,000 young people who were unhoused without their parents, like on their own. Um, and uh, that, that approximately, slightly more than 50% of them actually identified as LGBTQ, which was, you know, an enormous disproportion. Um, and you know, for a couple of years after that, there was not much action, but several of us providers banded together uh, and formed alliances with the broader LGBTQ movement in New York with some of the bigger advocacy organizations and, and kind of demanded that there be a, a, a city and a state response to, to these numbers. Uh, and, you know, it took a few years, but but we formed something we called the Campaign for Youth Shelter, uh, where we called upon our elected officials to commit to a plan to add 100 beds a year every year until there were no longer youth on waiting lists to get into the youth shelters. Uh, and it took a few years, but but, you know, we really were able to center it within the advocacy of the LGBTQ community in New York. And... Um, by 2014, when Mayor de Blasio was elected the mayor of New York, uh, he, he made it part of his campaign plan. And, and, and many of the political clubs in New York City and the LGBT press like made it part of their, their endorsement criteria. Um, and so, in fact, we've been able to get hundred, uh, tens of millions of dollars invested in creating additional housing for, for homeless young people in New York City. 
uh, about 500 additional beds have been created uh, as a consequence of, of, of that advocacy. Um, so, so, you know, from my vantage point, the data was helpful as a starting point, but we had to organize around that data and, and um, we had to form alliances with, with the, the kind of the, the broader powers within the LGBTQ community in our city. Mm. Um, and then you'd asked about employment. Um, you know, we see um, discrimination, obviously. Uh, where I see the discrimination tends to be more along like how gender normative people are. Uh, you know, like a, a, a rather butch appearing straight white boy maybe will have a lot more employment options than a black trans woman. Um, so, so actually like, you know, I, I see the, the disparities within who has access to work having to do with, um, in New York, certainly, uh, you know, whether folks are, are cis or trans, but also uh, along racial lines, uh, race is a big, issue in, in the United States uh, in terms of uh, creating disparities um, around equitable access to employment. One thing that we're, we're very fortunate with, uh, we've been able to partner first with New York State and with New York City now. Uh, they, the city just announced like a, a major investment in, in, in creating work opportunities for the young people and they've partnered with the Ali Fernay Center through something called the Unity Project uh, in recognition of those disparities and, and, and attempting to, to rectify it. That's great to hear. Um, your essay in the book um, starts with Stonewall riots and talks about homeless queer youth that led the Stonewall riots, the kind of LGBTQ plus uprising riots against the police in 1969. Um, at the Stonewall Inn. And then you talk about how even though homeless queer youth were at the sort of center of what this movement, what we think of as like the birth of the LGBTQ plus rights movement, um, there's been an infinitesimal response from queer communities towards the crisis. And you outline some of the reasons you think that is. Um, and I would love you to just kind of go over a couple of them here for us, because I found that really fascinating. I'd never really considered those questions before myself. Sure. Um, yeah. I think right now, frankly, it's a disgrace for the LGBTQ community on an international level that there has been so little response to this kind of fundamental experience of, of, of oppression, persecution, and disparity that we face, which is that so many young people just don't have equal access to their parents' love and support. Uh, when, when a young person is not supported by their family, it, it just sets, it, it's such a huge disadvantage uh, economically, psychologically, it's, it's devastating. Um, and 
there, there are a growing number of programs around the country and around the world that are that are responding to, to this issue. But but still, it feels like we're 50 years behind. Uh, it feels to me like from the start, it should have been recognized and centered that that um, LGBTQ young people are, are at great risk of, of homelessness and, and, and in need of support. And you know, gosh, I, I think it's complicated. Uh, I think that that so much of the central uh, disparagement of, of um, queer people historically has been around children. Has been like, you know, we're we're pedophiles and predators who are looking to to harm children. And so, you know, look, I was three years old when the Stonewall riots happened. So I, I you know, I, I, I wasn't really able to, to see from with my own eyes what was happening, but, but my sense is that, that there was a, almost like a, a willful looking away from, from the younger members of our community uh, in kind of subconscious defense against that accusation. Like, you know, if we're paying too much attention to young people, we're reinforcing this, this, homophobic narrative uh, of, of being pedophiles. Uh, so, you know, I think that in the first 20 or 30 years of, of the LGBTQ rights movement, there, there was just very little attention paid to the needs of young people. Um, I also think that when a, a community that has faced massive persecution uh, begins to fight back, uh, part of that, that there's like a psychological need to, to create a narrative of, of, of success. Um, you know, so much of the LGBTQ rights movement depended on people coming out of the closet, being open and, and um, announcing who they were to the world. Um, and I, I think that this experience of, of so many hundreds of thousands of young people being thrown out of their homes and, and made to suffer in the streets and having to rely on sex work. And, and it, it, it didn't fit the narrative. Um, you know, we wanted to say that you come out and it's, it's great and wonderful and you gain all this wonderful self-acceptance and you bask in the acceptance of some new community. These what what the young people were experiencing just did not fit that narrative whatsoever. Um, I also think just from what I've observed of the LGBTQ rights movement in the United States, um, obviously, like much of it was not able to be funded by governmental entities and had to be funded internally within the community. And I think that the first folks that got money in, internally in the community and had resources to kind of fund the broader movement tended to be cis white men. And I think that many cis white men could not relate to the experience of homelessness. Um, in, in the United States, it's disproportionately black and brown people who experience homelessness. Uh, so I, I think that there was a certain um, just not 
I think the folks that were funding the movement were not really able to relate to to the the experiences of of, of queer homeless youth, and so things like marriage equality and and adoption rights and 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 the ability to serve in the military and things like that were more centered uh, because I think that they connected more to what the folks who had the money could relate to. Right. Carla, um, how has the pandemic changed things? Because I've, I've I've read a few articles, but as you say, we don't really necessarily have statistics that tell us, but um, has the pandemic exacerbated an already bad problem? Yeah, definitely. Um, just going to write talking to what Carl was just saying about uh, how the power and the movement was is predominantly like cis women. I feel like when it came to the pandemic, for our, for our project, we were looking at what was happening in Spain, that like care homes were being completely wiped out. Um, and we were expecting, not expecting, but we were fearful that the same thing would happen in our shelter. Um, and we were, you know, that was a decision that we made as a team to keep the shelter open. Um, and we had to kind of fight for that space to remain open uh, during COVID, which was pretty terrifying. I mean, we were just a night shelter uh, that then just had to become 24 hours overnight. Um, and then we were in, in lockdown together. So we just had to make this space that was usually a night shelter, this kind of 24 hour space that kept, you know, a lot of young people entertained. Their sports teams had closed, their youth centers uh, were closed. Everything was just gone their jobs a lot of them are in kind of um kind of just just part-time jobs they were just getting back on their feet and all of the bars and the clubs everything was gone we were seeing a lot of the the kind of cabaret performers uh, people in like hmos overcrowded accommodation all of a sudden were becoming homeless uh, they were losing their income um you know they i think the first thing that we did was uh, set up the national handbag uh, which is polari for the doll which is which is slang for social security um, to try and give advice to our community about how they could access benefits um, and try and get funding for for their rent. Um, but yeah, I feel like the contact that we were getting was was definitely from more hugely more marginalised uh, people within within our communities. You know that that didn't have the stability of a home life. They didn't have the education. They didn't have those kind of stable jobs that then they would be furloughed. They didn't have uh, you know, strong like rental agreements, they could just be made homeless. Um, and then what we saw, you know, was, you know, in, in the press and, and on socials, you know, the, the shout out was about research and it was about, you know, one magazine was shouting to support an airline, um, you know, for, for uh, funding this, this airline because they were like a big sponsor of their, um, award ceremony and you just couldn't make it up you know when we saw that from from the queer press we were just like we were horrified and I think usually we would just take a step back and focus on what we were doing and just ignore the fact that you know these these kind of cis white men who who run the, the gay press and and things like that were sidelining us and, and ignoring us but we were literally in this pandemic and we had you know really it felt so hopeless and we just couldn't believe it that that the response was was so kind of uh, yeah disgusting really I mean not to recognize 
our situation at that point and not to report on that, but to try and get gain support for like Virgin Airlines instead because they sponsored their award ceremony. It just, um, so yeah, I think from us, I think we lost our, we lost our patience really early on. And that's when the Make Space for Homeless Queers campaign really started. You know, we were just kind of, we had, we had to shout about this. We had to go on social media. We had to get the community involved to try and protest in, in a safe way um, to try and, to try and get more accommodation, uh, safe accommodation. And that's when we opened the COVID safe hotel in Soho. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if we hadn't campaigned for it, if, you know, hundreds of queer people hadn't uh, sat with like placards, I don't know whether that would have happened because we just didn't have the coverage. We didn't have the support from the wider community. And, you know, as Carl said, it's, it's definitely, uh, the movement was more is more about like assimilation rather than like liberation for all. It's more about um, trying to find acceptance. And I guess that's where they were coming from, uh, more about showing that you're well. And I guess that's, you know, people who are traumatized by the AIDS crisis. Uh, so I think that we have this generation of people who are just kind of traumatized by that and just trying to, well, I don't know, but I just feel like there, there must be some reason why they're constantly trying to um, portray that we're all fine and everything's worth thriving and the pink pound and, you know, all of this kind of um, facade when they, they know and they must know that there's this huge, like, huge amount of young, not just young people, but more marginalised people that are really suffering in their community. So mm -hmm. there must be a reason for why they, they choose to ignore that. Yeah. Well, I'd like to make sure that we have time because we're nearing the end of the discussion to talk about solutions and practical things that people can do to help um, anyone who's watched this and is concerned by everything you've said as they should be. Um, where do we start with fighting this problem? I mean, I say start, you've been doing it for a very long time, Carl, um, and providing these services. But I wondered if you could say something to that about um, what, what kind of steps we can take. Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that this is an enormous problem facing our community and, and looking at who's currently responding to it and, and, and reaching out to them and figuring out ways to, to provide support. Um, you know, one thing that I'm encouraged by, uh, since I wrote, you know, I wrote the essay a little over a year ago, um, I've been working with groups around the United States and even some groups around the world, uh, providing them technical assistance as they are um, creating housing for, for homeless uh, queer youth. And, um, you know, I, I'm working with about 30 different groups in the United States who are, are looking to create housing, some in very rural areas. I'm, I'm working with a group in, in South Dakota, which is about as rural as you can get in the United States. I'm also working with a number of groups in the southern part of the United States, which, you know, historically has been this very religious conservative area. So, uh, you know, I'm working with groups in, in Nashville and Memphis, Tennessee and in Kansas City and Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so it's exciting to see that. Um, but something that I'm extraordinarily enthused about is um, right now I'm working with two groups uh, one in, in Warsaw, Poland, uh, another in um, San Salvador and El Salvador, 
that are, are creating housing for, for homeless queer youth in, in their communities. Uh, in Warsaw, it's called the Warsaw Foundation House. Uh, and they are in the process of opening up a, a shelter for the homeless queer youth of, of Warsaw. Um, given the, the really extraordinary uh, anti-queer political hostilities that have expressed themselves in the Polish government, uh, I think that that's like just a really wonderful program to support. Uh, I'm also working with this group in, in San Salvador called um, Santa Marta's Place. Um, they're being opened uh, in partnership with the Episcopal Church in El Salvador. Uh, given how often the churches are, are so much part of the problem, uh, I think it's really beautiful to see a church community coming together to, to intentionally support queer young people. So, yeah, I, I really think that Folks should research, see who's responding to, to queer folks, to homeless folks in your communities and offer them your support. Uh, if you're part of you know, a broader LGBT advocacy organization, uh, I think you should interrogate them and ask them how they are centering queer young people uh, and, and the, the, the needs of homeless people within the community, within their broader advocacy organizations. Um, I, I think this this neglect that 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 um, enables so many young people and, and so many queer people in general to be left out in the streets without housing will only end when when we center their needs and um, and demand that those needs be responded to and, and and that 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 our that our broader organizations. Uh, recognize the extent to which it's a crisis and, and, and center them better. Thank you so much. And just to end, yeah, Carla, I'd love to put that question to you and hear what your thoughts are. Sure. Um, so we've been talking to Casa Frida in Mexico. Um, and I think that during the pandemic, when we, were, we felt quite like hopeless and were we doing the right thing, staying open, um, it was really inspiring to us and just really kind of gave us hope to see that there was another shelter that was opened during the pandemic and it really validated the fact that we held that space um, and kind of campaigned for more space. So yeah, I think look into, look into other groups and in solidarity and showing support to them and learning from them. I mean, I've got a meeting with them af after this, actually, we, we just meet up every week now. Um, and just like the similarities between our projects and just kind of like just talking things through and and you know, hopefully with you know this coalition between our two shelters you know maybe our guests in our shelter will be able to meet them at some point whether it's like through online stuff or maybe even in person we'll be go, able to go and visit one day um, I think that just that just kind of gives us hope um, I think that supporting grassroots organisations is just really uh, vital. Um, I think in the UK, I mean, as, as I've said, I think that the charity, the charity structure can be quite elitist and more marginalised voices are never sat at the top table. Um, they're often more, uh, you know, researched about and and kind of given shopping vouchers in exchange for contributions rather than actually having a genuine voice. So I feel like, you know, solidarity uh, organizations are the, are the best way to go and to put, to put energy and time 
Um, and also like, I guess there's a, an over-professionalization as well. I mean, I guess I had lived experience and then I had training and professional experience, but I think there's a lot uh, of discouragement for people to set up their own thing as well. Um, I think that, you know, a bit of confidence in that our community needs to take on the task of, of setting up their own shelters and organization. And as Carl said earlier, like people have fear around working with young people and, you know, how, how that could be uh, misconceived. Um, but yeah, I think just reaching out for support and and just going for it. Like it, it's amazing that Carl seems to be supporting so many groups in the US. Like it would be, it'd be great to hear more about that at some point. Yeah, and Carl, I, I think I was originally put in touch with you through a friend who has been volunteering at the Ali Fournay Centre um, and kind of helping helping out. Is that is that something that people can do? Certainly. Um, uh, you know, if anybody's interested in volunteering at the Ali Fournay Centre, for example, I would direct folks to our website, alifournaycentre.org. Um, it will show there, there's a whole range of ways in which people can volunteer in terms of one-on-one mentoring relationships with our young people to uh, cooking in our sites, to working on our advocacy campaigns, to uh, helping us fundraise. Um, So, yeah, I I think that, you know, I I would second my my recommendation to provide financial support to to grassroots groups who are are doing the work, Uh, you know, if, if, if that's not possible or, 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 you know, in some ways, I think when, when, when folks volunteer and, and, and really connect to the young people and see what their lives and struggles are like in, in some ways it inspires more generosity. So, so I often think that volunteering and, and financial support go hand in hand. Amazing. Thank you both so much for all the information you've shared and for explaining everything so clearly and for giving us some practical advice to end on. Really appreciate it and really appreciate the RSA for having us today. It's nice to meet you both. And thanks to everyone for coming. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.